Hello and welcome to the Demographicast. This week we're joined by Jack Street as ever and Vicky Gill, one of our regular contributors. Vicky wrote an article for us uh, last week called The War on Woke, which it, it discusses the, the culture war <coughs> that sort of uh, that has managed to distract a lot of the um, the press and the media and, and just the general conversation around inequalities um, within our society and focused in more on this uh, this on discussion about statues and and uh, songs being sung at the proms and that sort of thing. Um, I'd like to know, Vicky, if uh, I know you covered it in your article, but I'd like to hear what your thoughts are basically on the on the attention that that uh, this culture war has, has now got instead of um, the focus on that should be put on inequalities instead. Yeah, I think it centers around the falling of the Edward Colston statue. I think that whilst it is important that we talk about statues and we talk about the public spaces and how they're occupied in our societies, because these are public figures, they are part of our history. Um, it's seemingly like, it's as if the debate centers around the importance of statues, these inanimate objects, rather than the importance of people's lived experiences um, and the inequalities that we face. I think when I was researching this, um, I found two sort of conflicting sides. One, which was sort of Robert Jenrick's latest statement stating that, we should contextualize these statues and we should put up signage that states that you know the money or the philanthropy or whatever that person contributed to our history they had involvements with the slave trade for example but at the same time i'd read articles about how petitions and countless like town hall debates about the colston statue in particular were centered around amending the plaque on the statue just to simply raise awareness that this man's philanthropy um, the money that he had given to the city was uh, earned I guess through um, putting a price on someone else's body colonizing someone's land and selling them like selling people and it, it isn't something that ever came about it was fruitless in every single attempt and I think to distract people and um to call it woke, to, I think, firstly, is quite insulting um, and to paint wokeness in a negative light when all it simply is, is raising awareness of social justice issues mm. um, is unfair. And I think it plays into a very sort of toxic culture and mood. Um, yeah, yeah um, so I, I, I completely agree. Do you think that the phrasing, as you just mentioned, uh, of these issues as being sort of woke issues, whatever that really means um, in this day and age, is used so that we don't have to have conversations about really how to fix these issues? Or do you think that people are genuinely concerned about uh, the erasing of certain aspects of history or uh, as they would, or some people would probably deem it sort of certain rewriting of history um do you think that there is there are genuine concerns about that or do you think that really this is about not properly tackling issues that as you say are impacting people's lived experiences i think firstly it comes down to the word woke i think is i mean i question the suitability of a word that came about in america in the 1940s by sort of black americans african americans who used it 
simply as like a colloquial phrase to mean that people were becoming aware of social issues. And I think most people in this country are aware of social issues. Um, I don't think they're comfortable with the word woke, possibly because I haven't heard of it until the summer. I think it's a very new sort of phrase. Um, and I think the connotations, the way it's been shaped to um, almost have a political divide between the left and the right mm. is one thing. And I think people's um, concerns about rewriting history maybe stem, and I, I don't know personally, but maybe stem from the way in which history is taught in schools. It seems to be very sort of Eurocentric. It is from the lived experiences of people in Great Britain, in Europe, in America, rather than really tackling both sides of the empire. I think when we discuss empire, whilst we do talk, I think we're coming to a point where we are starting to talk about issues of um, like partition in India, for example, or the effects of empire, like the negative things about empire. Um, that hasn't always been the message I think that has been brought across. Um, mm. And so I don't really think you can rewrite history because that would be to erase everything and start again. And I think yeah. in the same way as we talk about statues, all it is is that it's just adding this extra level of awareness that these people have done good. For example, when we talk about Churchill, for example, his statues have been put up in the context of the Second World War. Um, his statues haven't been put in the context of genocides or um, anything else that he's been contributing to that's negative. And I think when people find out about those sorts of things, there's two ways in which they can react. They can even go, okay, that was someone that I looked up to and there's lots of things that were wrong or problematic, but they were accepted in that time. And in today's age, it isn't or they will go down the route of either denying that completely or they and um, becoming very reactionary, whether that is uh, graffitiing over statues or whether that is saying he wasn't a racist. Um, I think that there needs to be, and I, I understand because when you get sort of caught up in that movement very quickly, it becomes very emotional. But I think that in the long term, we need to have a good look at the way in which we teach history, the way in which we yeah. portray these figures. Um, because ultimately we can't change the past, but we can raise awareness to it in a way that is fair and balanced. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, when it comes to the, the, the Edward Colston example, a, a lot of people, myself included, were calling for that statue to be put in a museum. So, you know, the, the erasure of history argument, I think, falls flat on its face when you really listen to and engage with people uh, who are talking about the way in which we should look at these characters. Um, I, I think you're completely right. And I think it's important to look at what a statue is about. Like you, you rightly say, it's about, in many ways, a statue is celebrating somebody um, uh, for, for, you know, their, their achievements, things that they've done in their lives to remember that person. Um, and like you say, we need to be very clear about the imperfection of human beings, that nobody should be put on such a high pedestal that we cannot look at them through any kind of critical lens, because that then becomes, you know, this kind of revisionism 
that I think many, no, I don't think anybody wants to, to see, or at least I hope that nobody wants to see. And we always come around to talking about education eventually. And Brett, I'm sure this is something that you wanted to, to ask, but um, I think that we've done a very poor job of uh, educating not only historical figures or, or educating ourselves, and I include myself with this, uh, on historical figures, but also critical thinking and ways of, of engaging in dialogue and talking about these issues. So it's very easy to fall into that divisiveness. For sure. I had a random thought though. there should be QR codes on statues that you can sort of scan and it takes you to somebody's Wikipedia page or something. It's a great idea. I think they should, yeah, they should do that. It is a great idea. <laughs> you should patent that. Mate. I should. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk about the, the sort of term woke because I think it's very similar to how, um, political correctness the, the, or the expression political correctness um, in the sense that different sides seem to think it means different things um, because when I first saw the term woke sort of come about around springtime last year it was a very sort of uh, it was a term that the, the young people using a lot I, I saw then as like a, a way to express how um, I don't really know what to I how aware of social issues I guess they were and how um uh, progressive they were and then it sort of transformed into a, a bit more of a negative term used by people from the opposite side of that spectrum saying using it as a, as a negative term like to, to call people out on their their wokeness and their and it kind of seemed to mean um almost an attack like like you've been saying on on people's history on histories of different countries or or even um races I don't really have a question to ask there but I don't know if you agree with with that at all <laughs> yeah I think I think with political correctness I'll give you an example um there was a report that was published under new labor mm. which stated that uh, open search um in its sort of policy formation was going to be something that was going to have negative impact and have a bias towards um, black and ethnic minority communities. I mean, that is proven to be true. Um, and I think there was one social campaigner that said to Tony Blair that um, black communities are, um, they face a lot of, they face a lot of injustices, not just because of their skin color, but because of the way in which they work, they work in our sort of demographic in this country because they tend to be from poorer backgrounds. They live in certain areas that don't get the same sort of funding. And he's turned around and he said that people who say that um, say that are politically correct, rather than looking at the facts, because it didn't fit his political agenda. Sure. And I think that's what's happening now is that, and I don't think, and I think that's what that's what really irritates me is that people see woke as being left wing and progressive, when not every left wing person is socially progressive, mm. just as not every right wing person isn't socially progressive. I think. It's also much more palatable for certain generations to say things like social justice rather than woke. I think you see a big reaction towards these movements because people are either too ingrained and too comfortable in the way that they live or that they get scared of change. And I yep. think throwing terms that they're unfamiliar with or they can't connect with, like white privilege, for example, that if you say that, you have to explain what it means yeah. and sometimes those slogans 
like ACAB or white privilege do the opposite effect? And it do we do we need slogans really? Do we need to categorize things or is it better just to have a more civil but longer conversation with someone? Yeah, uh, I think the same thing happened with the sort of all co um, not, uh, defund the police argument. Um, you know, the interpretation of that was completely different depending on who you spoke to um, and then the repercussions of, of what that would do. So in many ways, we're having separate conversations. I think, uh, Vicky, I think you're co completely right in terms of uh, labels being unnecessary, wanting to put people in boxes. Um, uh, because I, I don't think that uh, I think it's difficult to sit down and have long form conversations with people about the, the implications of detailed policies that take mm -hmm. years to formulate. Um, and oftentimes we can't see what the implications of those policies are going to be. Um, these things are complex. They are nuanced. Um, and it's not as easy as going right. What is the right thing to do here? Because there is no necessarily a right thing to do, especially when we're talking about uh, deep inequalities and injustices um, that have formulated in, in society for hundreds and hundreds of years. So it's it's easier and you get more clout, I think, on social media by uh, playing these, these political games and calling people woke or politically correct because they want to see people's lives improved. I remember seeing a video from PragerU recently where they spoke about the two ideologies on the left right they said that there's two ideologies on the left liberal and leftist you know so this is a a, a, a liberals were the more level-headed reasonably minded and leftists were everybody else on the left that believed in sort of social progression were anti-conservative ideology that's how they framed it um which is uh, kind of spits in the face of years of political research and you know lots of uh academics and, and, and activists who have thought up complex uh, solutions and ideas to really complex problems but it also frames the conversations we have I think in a really negative way so before we've even started if Vicky you and I sit down and have a conversation about you know whether or not a statue should be brought down if I call myself right-wing and anti-woke and you say that you're someone who is who is more progressive who wants to stand up to injustices we're already you know at loggerheads we're already not trying to find a solution to the to the problem and that's where i think discourse in this country has really reached a, a position where um we're unable to have productive conversations about this stuff and i don't necessarily i don't know i'm interested to know what you both think about this but i don't know if we need i think movements are useful in terms of raising awareness about issues um but like you say with having slogans and uh, chants and stuff it's they, they are good grassroots movements are really important but we really need to get down to having policy conversations and, and uh, you know talks about how we're going to actually impact and change people's lives and I don't think that's what we're doing and I think in many ways that's more important um, and uh, oftentimes these movements don't really amount to, to much actual change yeah um, on that I mean, I, when I was researching this, I didn't know that Theresa May had made a speech when she was Home Secretary to say that Black people are disproportionately um, affected by sort of police brutality and the justice system. And that shocked me because that is something that has been cropping up in conversation more and more often. Yeah. But I think, as you said, like as soon as you put the word woke in your Twitter bio or you try and solve such a complex issue in 
a thread of tweets. Um, you're you're not actively um, sitting down and like having nuanced conversations. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily people's fault. I don't think that we always have the time or we have the resources or the mental capacity to constantly talk about this. But I think it is important to see, I think the shift between sort of the Cameron and May governments in terms of their, um, their sort of tackling of inequalities versus sort of like the cancel culture and like the woke culture that we have now. Um, and that's just something that shocked me because I thought, you know, she wouldn't say something like that, would she? That's not like conservative ideology, but mm. that's me also reacting yeah, to sure. woke and anti-woke. Mm. Um, why, why do I have the right to say that everyone who's right wing isn't socially mm. progressive, for example? Yeah. Yeah. No, and uh, like you say, it's it, we all fall into it, right? We all fall into those those problems. For sure. I have lost my train of thought. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah, I was just thinking that um, mentioning sort of social media and all that because it seems to be that this sort of I don't even want to call it conversation because when people are, uh, in, from what I've seen, when people are bringing up wokeness or anti wokeness there's never a conversation it's always sort of shouting about either side um and i'm curious to know if you think that i think you've kind of already hinted at it in your your article i'm i'm just sort of curious to know if if well you or or jack thinks that the this culture war is only prominent because of social media and maybe at a push tabloids and that really because i don't I haven't personally had a conversation with people about this really before. I think this is the, probably the, the first time that I've actually talked to people about it. Otherwise, it seems to be more of a case of people shouting at each other from one point of view to the other over Twitter. Vicky, I don't know what you what you think. Um, I think Twitter is quite a toxic place, isn't it? Sometimes, <laughs> yeah. um, and I've had conversations it's really difficult to get your point across in a way um because you lose that sort of human element yeah, yeah. and I think like we're in a pandemic as well like <laughs> I can't remember the last time I've like met up face to face in person sure. with someone um you do sort of lose that and I think we all like to have our own little echo chambers on social media because mm. we sometimes don't like to be confronted with other points of views and I think it's a lot easier to lash out and to say things on yeah. social media that if you met that person in real life I'm not necessarily saying you'd agree with them but you'd have a you'd have a better sort of debate because ultimately you'd hope that most people would want social progress and equality yeah yeah I, I think Twitter Twitter was started as uh, it wasn't created for this purpose right twitter was started as a networking platform so that's what we have to bear in mind um that we shouldn't be using twitter as our primary means of communication yeah. it's really ridiculous don't right? have we debates can't on have twitter. constructive conversations yeah we can't have <laughs> constructive conversations with people or debates um and expect to learn something because uh, a you know you can't really it's difficult to formulate a coherent argument about this stuff in that amount of characters um, but also there are very, uh, there are, there aren't really repercussions on a human level 
as to what you say in a conversation. So, you know, if if I was to get really het up in a conversation here and start shouting and swearing and, you know, you guys are not going to want to talk to me anymore. That's that's the repercussion. Whereas on Twitter, there's, uh, you, you know, you're going to think I'm, I'm, I'm somebody that needs to be pushed, probably pushed out of conversation. But on Twitter, there's that kind of thing is rewarded because, you know, you can put, you can change your name, you can change your picture, and then you're no longer you, you're this, this sort of alter ego persona. Um, and there are plenty of people that, that do the same thing. And I think there's a, a sort of probably a, a rush that people get from having conversations in that way. And what needs to be encouraged is actually going out and having debates and having conversations and putting yourself in positions that are uncomfortable and challenging your conceptions and one of the things that the black lives matter movement did for me and i know that we've spoken about this on the podcast before is it it really helped to challenge my like my notions about my position in society my need to use my voice you you mentioned white privilege earlier enabled me to kind of understand what that really meant but that takes it's difficult it takes you know looking at your own views and challenging your own views and it's 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 difficult to do that and of course i'll fall into the same position as many people do read the headline of an article and get really angry without reading the full thing i think we all do it um and, but because it takes time and it's difficult to to do, do that stuff so i wanted it's to, so important <clears throat> i wanted to sort of touch on that because I, when i see the term work used used online it mostly seems to be used by people who um use it as a negative uh, in a negative way and i was sort of when thinking about this topic and reading your article um vicky i was thinking about how so as jack sort of mentioned he he felt like he was sort of had to challenge his views a little bit when the black lives matter came out that stuff happened so did i there were um sort of things that i think were ingrained in me in society that i sort of just didn't even acknowledge as being um not not uh what's the word not progressive but you you as a, a white person i think you kind of are automatically um uh encouraging the the sort of systematic systemic racism if you don't actively acknowledge that you're a part of the issue and i think that the term wokeness has been started to be used in a negative way by people who saw that and couldn't come to terms with it. People who maybe are not able to to reflect on their own views and see them as as maybe even bigoted or or racist in their own way. If if I may, I I, I also think that it's a problem of the framing as well i think that when you it it really matters who you direct this stuff towards and really really matters who you're you're talking to so if you speak to a, a single mother of three who is working three jobs to support her children and you know works harder than most people in society but still barely still struggles to get by and you're pointing the finger at her and saying you have white privilege you're part of the problem it's very difficult to for her or for that person in that situation to be able to see that. And I don't think it actually achieves anything. And what we need to be doing is looking at the structures that have been created in society and specifically governments, decision makers, policy makers, and going, first of all, white privilege is saying that if you're a white person, one of the things that doesn't make your life harder is your skin color. That's all white privilege is. Yeah. 
and it's, it's just acknowledging that that's that's the thing people that are white have this extra co co contributive contributory factor as to what makes their life more difficult but also you have a responsibility to listen to the voices of, the, of people that have suffered inequalities and do something about it it, it can yeah. be used in a positive way and we haven't put that spin on it mm -hmm. um and i think that that is part of that, that's part of the problem i don't know if you if you agree vicky i come from a very different sort of angle because i am i'm a fourth generation indian immigrant and whilst i've faced racism because of my skin color i know within my community there's also anti-black racism for example and so i come from this position where I acknowledge I have more privilege than people who have darker skin colors than me because I can pass as either being mixed race or I can pass as someone who tans essentially and within that I know that whilst in my sort of ancestral history we've been oppressed because of colonialism I know for a fact that my community also partakes in the oppression of other minority communities and I think that brings in that ties everything together it's intersectional you know you can have a working class white person who's mm. never privileged in their life and we know from the stats that working class white boys um, don't go to university in the same proportion as working class white girls for example or um, ethnic minority and black um, working class people who go to university um, and I think that white privilege is one of those difficult sort of terms to understand because I think when you've faced so many other oppressive systems um, the last thing you want to hear is that you have something that um, almost in a way benefits you yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's, yeah. it's more about looking at sort of governmental systems like the way in which universal credit works for example or we've got a housing crisis or the way in which education's been underfunded and it's difficult because those are concepts and you cannot see them. Whereas I think you have a conversation with someone and they tell you white privilege, you can see them and you can directly attack them mm. for it. Because these systems aren't things that most of us think about on a regular basis. Sometimes it, it kind of gets to the point where because nothing seems to change, no matter which government you have in, um, you, you forget that there is a system out there that is oppressing you and you think more about in the way in which it divides communities up because ultimately um everyone will face injustices at some point in their life um yeah. i think people just don't want to i don't i don't know if it's constructive and that's the thing that i'm battle with is is it constructive to really say that someone has white privilege because they still face prejudice for example because of their lifestyle yeah. if they're on yeah. benefits for example and it's about that distinction between sort of racism and prejudice i think that we need to have a conversation about do you think that yeah. we we need to uh, completely i mean i'm sure i think this is the what i got from your article but uh, do you think that we really need to just completely reframe how we have these conversations and how we go about solving systematic inequalities there do you think that the way that we're discussing do you think that any of the way that we're discussing this stuff at the moment is constructive um, I read an article like um, by um, Nadia Whittam and she stated that we need to tackle, um, I've got notes because I was like, I'm going to forget what I'm going to say, but she says that we need to tackle um, wokeness head on, 
because she says that it's just political education is fundamental in rooting out the discrimination. So we talk about trans rights, for example, and there's for some reason a debate about the rights of people to identify in the way that they want to. And she says, you need to frame it because it is a healthcare issue. Um, she says that it's a domestic violence issue, it's a poverty issue, it's a homelessness issue because trans people, when they are rejected from their families or their communities, they face all of these extra obstacles. And if you can't frame it in language that people understand um, and they aren't familiar with, they're not going to want to listen, I think, at the end of the day. Um, it's, it's a difficult one because she also talks about intersectionality a lot because um, she says that she recognizes, for example, that she is cisgendered and that's something that she doesn't, she's not going to face discrimination because like, you know, the sex in which she was born in is the one that she identifies in. Um, yeah. And so that's something that she has privilege over. Whereas for example, her skin color or her um, working class background, for example, are things that she doesn't have privilege over. Um, I do think we need to change the way in which we have these debates. I think it's, I guess it's constructive in one way to say, look, you have privilege in this area of your life, but all the other areas where you don't have privilege, we have to focus on those areas. Mm. Yeah. What about you, Brett? Do you, do you see that these conversations that we're having in the way that, that, that they're framed and uh, particularly the, the areas of people's lives that we're looking at as being the areas that we that, that we're, we're focused on. Uh, do you think that, that that's constructive, or do you think that we need to change the way that we, we look at this stuff? It's hard because I feel like I don't necessarily have so much of a. I don't know if it's my place to say because I'm not really, I'm not part of you know a group of or a minority. I'm not. I'm a white male, so I'm I'm. A white middle class male at that as well so i have this sort of this uh privilege already that and i although i acknowledge that things need to change i just don't know how i don't know how personally because i hear good arguments from so both sides it's about... whether it's about you know talk, trying to bring more awareness to the fact that people have white privilege or at least not frame it in a, such an aggressive way trying to frame it in a because I think people have misunderstood what white privilege means in the terms that they, they seem to think it's an attack on white people if you're a white person, rather than just uh, an acknowledgement that if you are born white, you don't have the same hurdles to, to jump over that, sure. that other minorities would. Um, I just want to bring up also what you said a minute ago, Vicky, that when you said about how you acknowledge your privilege or, or more of slightly more of a privilege than black people because you uh you know can pass off somebody who's tanned that's that baffled me that that sort of thought process the fact that we're as a society that's how some people think that because you know because you're you look slightly more white than a black person does that means that you're that's just the mind-boggling that and i there are people out there that that obviously judge people on their skin color and and think that way and think that you know you're you're you don't you're not as valuable because you're not white 
or you're, it's just baffling to me. And you saying that made it brought that up for a minute in my head. I was like, wow, it's crazy. But I think it's, I think the way in which we frame racial issues in this country is very much ethnic minorities or black people yeah. and white people. Yeah. And mm. one of the things in sort of Indian culture is like the caste system and skin color and you're deemed more beautiful um the lighter your skin color is like mm-hmm. you can go to india and you'll see um advertisements everywhere for like skin lightening treatment like i can't wow. tell you how many times i've been told don't go outside you're going to get tan you're going to get dark because that's seen as a negative thing yeah. um and that perpetuates racism within our culture um but it also gives me that privilege because in a white culture i'm sort of deemed more more acceptable i yeah. think there is a bit of a hierarchy as well so i think in the language that based on use. skin color <laughs> so weird yeah i mean and a lot of white people want to get tanned like i'm really pale i'd like to get a tan but <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, it's yeah these the way that these these social constructs have formed um you know is it is really it is really baffling and it's it why i think the best way that we can begin to tackle some of these issues is through actual action that is going to tangibly improve people's lives you know this is what I, I, i've you know, been saying since earlier this year when we're talking about this these issues when we, we're discussing any kind of inequality particularly racial inequality is the opportunity is or lack thereof is the the, the real issue that we're, we're talking about and for us to, to begin to solve a lot of this stuff it's about ensuring that people from wherever whatever background you have have an opportunity to better their, their lives that's really the fundamentals of what we're talking about and I think we've really got away from that a lot of people like to discuss um you know I'm for equality but only equality of opportunity well how are you how are you for that it's all well and good saying that you're for yeah. that, but how are you for progressing that? Do you want to see more investment into education? Do you want to see an overhauling of the benefit system? Do you want to see a living wage? You know, do you want to see more affordable house housing? Are these the things that you're really working towards? Or are you just saying that you're for those things without actually either putting forward any alternatives or actively trying to use your voice, to use your platform to, to achieve to achieve those things? Um, and that's that's where I get frustrated. I think when we go moving going back to, to looking at how governments have worked to uh, tackle these issues, um, there has been a, dis- a lot of talking and a distinct lack of, of actual policy um, being put in place to, to tackle these these issues. And the, the pandemic sure. has highlighted that more than anything else. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's such a shame to see that you know that these narratives keep getting more and more uh you know inflamed and and more popular um at least on social media and in the tabloids um because at the end of the day they are distracting from any kind of actual societal progress um we can't have conversations if people are shouting each other on anonymously online you know you've got to these things have to be tackled and they have to be um tackled soon um i wanted to say as well like i think vicky you mentioned this social media is an echo chamber and it is a bubble and it doesn't it's not fully representative of real life so i think that often people are having conversations that are far more productive on the ground and when you talk to people that work for charities or grassroots organizations 
there are there is a semblance of really working to better people's lives so it's not all doom and gloom and no. that's why it's important to balance out your your perceptions away from from social media i think for sure we want to carry on events um, <laughs> so uh this week we're going to talk about um keir starmer was urged recently in the last couple of days to back a radical or to back radical constitutional reform in the UK by quite a few senior uh, members of the Labour Party from different sides of the Labour Party spectrum. Um, there's people included Gordon Brown, John McDonnell, sort of certain Corbyn allies, people, you know, centrists behind uh, Starmer. The, the reforms that they were suggesting include, I'm going to list them for you, they include a UK-wide constitutional convention bolstered by citizens' assemblies to investigate options for reform, um, a written constitution that would greatly reduce the monarch's powers, replacing the House of Lords with a federal senate um, of nations and English regions, uh, giving the Scottish Parliament, Welsh Parliament and Northern Irish Parliaments uh, permanent constitutional independence, uh, more borrowing and policymaking powers for, for the Scottish Parliament, um, Significant devolution of policymaking and financial powers to English regions and councils, including borrowing. Um, so, what what do you both think of those uh, as suggestions? Do you think do you, do you think Keir Starmer should support them? Do you think he will? Okay, you can go first. <laughs> There's a lot to tackle. Yeah. Um, <laughs> things that I'm really in favour with is reforming the House of Lords and having this federal Senate, I think that it will hopefully, and because I don't really, I see these sort of like independence movements gaining traction and it is just a call for people's voice to be heard because I think we don't mm -hmm. have enough sort of regional devolution because of the way in which each region has like its own special sort of um, focal industry, for example. And we see a lot of, um, jobs being sort of centered towards like southern cities rather than like up north like I'm based up in Newcastle and like I know how hard it is like to I guess sort of have that representation in parliament in Westminster and so that's something that I'm interested in but at the same time I was looking at sort of like these citizen assemblies and sort of regional devolution and in 2018 only 35% of people registered to vote voted in council elections. Yeah. And I'm not sure if that's because people feel that councillors don't have enough power and they're not being heard properly, or if it genuinely is just this apathy that they only really want their MP to represent them. Um, it's a difficult one, I think, because it sort of brings up all these issues of, well, you might have a Conservative-led council, for example, but you might have a Labour MP. Mm. Um, are they going to work together because of their political differences? Um, and it's, well, what sort of powers would um, sort of regional assemblies have? Um, I don't really understand why they would want borrowing powers necessarily. Um, it seems like it's a very complex system. I think that he would probably accept things like Devo Max. I think that Scottish independence could possibly become a reality if you accept that there might be a second independence referendum because of Brexit. Um, and I am halfway housed with written constitutions 
I quite like the fact that we've got quite a flexible constitution right now and that it's not codified, but at the same time, a lot of the parliamentary procedures are out of date. Um, and it's, it's one of those things where if you put something into a constitution and you get it wrong, it's so difficult to change it. Um, yeah. And sometimes you yeah. need direct action and you need something to be changed very quickly. Um, for example, like when we changed the gun laws, um, that happened very quickly because we could just have a vote in parliament and we could change the laws. Whereas I feel like these sorts of things, um, this country is very slow when it comes to any sort of change that like we're still waiting for conversion therapy to be banned and become illegal um, and I just fear that those sorts of things might if we don't have proper equality for everyone and protection for minorities um, that a written constitution might harm progress. Yeah I, I actually have the same worries with uh, a written constitution especially if it's it depends how it's it's formulated as particularly if it's formulated in a similar way to the US constitution, there is so many issues with um, that system. Uh, I think that I don't necessarily trust most politicians, most policymakers to do those sorts of things, those massive changes in, in, in that way uh, properly. I guess. Yes, essentially, but that's just maybe a distrust of, of, of politicians and political structures. I like the, the idea of having a more direct form of democracy in this country. I think that's needed. I think first, I think that starts with electoral reform. I think that needs to be the first thing on the agenda. Um, and as, as is having a, 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 an elected um, second chamber, I think that to go back to what you were saying about councils, I think that one of the reasons um, that council elections are so, um, the voter turnout so low is that people just either don't know that they're going on or they don't know what they're voting for. I think that there's a real disconnect between local people and what councils actually do. I don't know if either of you have ever been to a local council meeting. It is one of the most boring things you can ever attend. Um, as, as someone who has attended many to go and watch, um, it's not the most fun in the world. And oftentimes it seems that things could be discussed in a far more streamlined um, manner. And I, I think that there's far too much party politics within local councils. Um, and often councils have their hands tied into, as to what they can actually do. Um, and local people don't have enough say as to what goes on. So I think that ensuring that there is, that, that people have more of a say in what goes on in their local area, because the power of local councils to make decisions based on their, their local area, is far, it should be far more than what it is at the moment because they have more knowledge about what's going on on the ground. Um, and I, I don't think the central government really should be making specific decisions based on local areas. We also have already lots of problems with funding um, being favoured towards conservative councils over Labour councils. Uh, we've seen this with, with different forms of coronavirus funding, um, which is awful. Uh, but that's the reality of uh, the system that, that we have at the moment. So I, I like the further devolution to, to local councils. On to the sort of um, devolving powers to the nations. I think uh, I said this on the podcast we did with Owen Jones and uh, the power, the, the Labour Party needs to think of how it's going to fight to keep the union together that doesn't just involve shouting about how dangerous it could be economically for Scotland to leave. Um, 
there needs to be some kind of productive move forward. Labour needs to work to win seats back in Scotland if it wants to be elected anyway. And therefore, there needs to be a positive message that, that is put out um, that Sc the Scottish people can um, relate to and, and will, you know, want, want Scottish people to be in Britain under a Labour government. And I think that's a way of doing that. Um, so I, I like these ideas and I think it is something that Keir Starmer would consider um, adopting. I know he said he's, he said that he'd, he'd consider adopting um, some of these policies already. You know, there's, I know we're going to talk about this, but there's been um, discussion about scrapping tuition fees, lowering the voting age to 15 and 16, oh sorry, to 16 and 17. So uh, Starmer, Keir Starmer is not opposed to these kind of more radical reforms or the ideas about these more radical reforms. I, I think that it, there just needs to be a, a bit of clarity that's needed. But I think this is the way to go for the Labour Party. I think this is where the alternative lies. Um, it also has the benefit of silencing Nigel Farage's new party, which has basically been put together to propose this kind of stuff. So I think if Labour are going to adopt this, it, the sooner, sooner rather than later. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I think I, I like the the sound of a lot of the things. Like, I am a bit concerned about, like you guys say, the sort of the written constitution and what that would involve. Um, in the article that I found these points in, it only really mentions well, the, the, when it mentions a written constitution, it only says that it would greatly reduce the monarch's powers. Um, and I don't, yeah. really, it doesn't really clarify how. As if she has yeah. many powers as it is. I don't. <laughs> right. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Um, um, I, I think. I don't know if we've, we've discussed sort of our position on the monarchy too much before, so maybe that's a topic for now, maybe it's a topic for another day, but um, I, I think uh, there is something to be said for having the kind of uh, system that we have, the most progressive, happiest nations with the best education systems, the best social justice in the world have a... Uh, a monarch and, and our sort of social democratic countries um, uh, with 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 a monarchy, and it seems to be a good way of, of separating powers and balancing powers. Uh, you know, the, the monarchy isn't going to be abolished anytime soon. So, uh, I think no. that Jeremy Corbyn. These these were plans that were proposed under Jeremy Corbyn. I, I can't see them being adopted by Keir Starmer particularly, um, but I, I I think that there are things that are more important to be done before we start looking at ratifying any kind of constitution. Yeah. The first um, point that, they, that I read out, the a UK-wide constitutional convention bolstered by citizens' assemblies to investigate options for reform. Does that, am I reading that right in thinking that it's saying that it would uh, open up the option for further reform in the future with the uh, backing of citizens' assemblies or the because I mean, I like the sound of that personally. <laughs> I think uh, I think if you were to reform the system, you would also need to put in place some kind of uh, new uh, system. <laughs> using the same word again, a new system that that allows for further reform in the future when eventually things change. Because you can't obviously rely on one system forever. So creating some kind of process that allows them to that allows us to to seek reform again in the future, I think, is also important. Mm. I think that's sort of what we're seeing now when we see um, an independent sort of Scotland potentially on the horizon if we don't sort this out is that Lab New Labour were very good at sort of devolving powers and we've seen reforms and Scotland um, in particular gain more powers um, over the years but I don't necessarily see them as being sort of successful um, 
mm. is sort of what I guess Scotland is kind of saying that they, they want to be fully independent and I think if they can sort of set out a plan as to why they want to be independent and all I can hear really is we want to join the EU again yeah um if Labour can then come to an agreement that you know if you vote us into power these are the sorts of things that you would get in return um it's it seems like it's a it's flexible and I think that as sort of time progresses like countries face different problems and problems that people face in Scotland might be vastly different to problems that people face in England or Wales um but that shouldn't be a reason to leave the union mm. um but I think that it's become as though they haven't been heard in so long that they've decided that if they can't have their voices heard in Westminster um that it's better to leave yeah yeah, I think so too. If um, if Starmer was to adopt these kind of policies or similar ones, do you think it would work for him in the next election? I don't think I, I don't think he has a choice. To be honest, I, I, I think something has to be laid out. I think some kind of uh, direction, some kind of policy needs to be laid out now and not in three and a half years time. I think that that would be remiss if policy discussions were only started as the election was, was coming up, particularly because the calls for independence are becoming so strong. And I think that the Labour Party needs to lead uh, its own call for Scotland to, to, remain in the, uh, to remain part of the union, sorry. Um, I don't think that doing a kind of EU style campaign where it sides with the government is a good idea at all. Um, so I think that needs to start now and I think that policy needs to be suggested now and I think that the Labour Party being the voice for that will, will, will inevitably help in the next election. I, th I think not filling the void is more dangerous than filling the void with something. I do think that it's, I think this is a natural position for Labour to take. I think if we look back to Tony Blair, removing most of the hereditary peers, for example, um, things like the European Court of Human Rights and um, the Human Rights Acts um, are policies that naturally sort of fall towards Labour. Um, I think that there is, there's been calls for reforming the House of Lords for a long time. And I mean, I've seen Alistair Campbell tweet about this multiple yeah. times. Um, but even having sort of conversations with my very sort of conservative family, the way in which this pandemic has highlighted the way in which there is a lack of scrutiny, I think, from the House of Lords, a lack of expertise as well. These are people who are sort of ex-MPs, so they know lots about sort of parliamentary workings, but they don't really know a lot about everyday sort of ordinary lives. And I think also the, re the way in which regions are represented is really important, the way in which different sort of parts of our economy and... Um, different sort of aspects of jobs are represented like I would like to see yeah. people who've owned like a fishing company in the House of Lords because maybe then the fishing trade when it came to like a Brexit deal would have been successful um I think that there just isn't that there isn't like proper scrutiny because you know they yeah. get to scrutinize the bills but they don't have enough powers. Um, I've, when I read this, it said that they would be able to veto and ratify sort of like yeah. international treaties. And by having elected people who 
um, have to stand on a platform of achievements and expertise. I think that, you know, that's something that I'm sure a lot of people would find to be much more attractive than this sort of elitist backdoor entry into yeah. some other form of power. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think that something that you mentioned that's, that's really key is that any discussion towards this end needs to work towards ending the geographical divides that we see, particularly in terms of, of participating in, in democracy in this country. Um, uh, one of the many inequalities that's gone uh, really under under noticed is is the the ge geographical inequalities that we we have in this country. I think it'd be a good opportunity again for the Labour Party to lead on tackling some of those issues and um, put forward, like we were saying before, something tangible that's going to uh, help to solve solve those problems. So. Mm. Yeah, I, I hope, like I said, I, I hope that, that something towards this is adopted, particularly in terms of electoral reform, um, yeah. because that will that, that will be incredibly beneficial, particularly to young people um, in, in having their voices heard and having some kind of really uh, representative system. Mm. I'd be interested to see, because I think the Labour Party, if they were to adopt these uh, policies, their arguments would have to be strong. They'd have to be um, sort of or almost populist in nature, because otherwise the other side is just going to throw socialism, communism, and sort of uh, anti-patriotic, anti-monarchy rhetoric their way. They're going to do that whatever you, you suggest. Yes, which is so why that, the Labour Party needs a strong your... argument if they do adopt these policies, yeah. because they can't just but you, let that... I, I think in, in many ways it, it, you, you have to think about how you're going to deliver these points, of course, but that can't be at the forefront of your mind because whatever you suggest, like let's take the yeah. broadband uh, example, that, that people are going to say that this is some communist, Marxist, uh, maniacal idea, when in reality it's turned out to be a policy that was incredibly sensible. Um, mm -hmm. You know, So whatever you, whatever you put forward, it's going to be smeared. Um, you just need to be able to sell it, sell it properly, and sell it strongly, and be confident about about policy suggestions. Not try and hide them away. No. And I think that sort of falls into the immediacy of it. If you can repeat your policies over and over again for the next yeah. three and a half years, yeah. you'll be able to convince a lot of more people that it'll become part of like normal discourse. Yeah. Whereas if you throw a policy in six weeks before an election, it's brand new. People get scared of sort of this quickly thought out radical yeah. change they don't want to vote for you then mm -hmm. yeah yeah completely completely and when when issues arise you know like the broadband thing people turn around and go oh actually you know that's a really good that's a really good point and like I say it gives gives the opportunity that that's in my eyes that that's that's the true purpose of the opposition mm. yeah uh let's move on to our second current event um just quickly because i think we're running low on time slightly um i saw there was an article earlier today i saw in the bbc that spoke about um how vice chancellors of seven universities have called for interest on uh student tuition fees to be scrapped for the next 15 months um to support students throughout the pandemic because obviously they've they've had a pretty tough time um and the university's minister michelle donnellan i believe that's how you pronounce it uh, argues that scrapping interest wouldn't help students in need at all, and the government instead has announced a fifty million pound student hardship fund on top of the twenty million pounds they already pledged at the end of twenty twenty. Um, I was interested to find out how, if any of that money had gotten to any students, and if it was um, how it would be 
distributed. And in the article, it does say that the funding will be distributed by the Office for Students directly to universities, which will prioritize the students most in need. Um, do either of you agree with either of these um, these uh, ways to, to help students? Do you think it, they're the right ways to try and help? Um, I'm, I'm not with really sure what a zero interest. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not really sure what a zero interest um, sort of freeze on my student loans would necessarily do for me. Um, I think that's the argument that the government's making, to be honest. Um, which is why I would then my follow up question would yeah. be why would vice chancellors be asking for this? Then, either of you, any? Uh... If, if I could be cynical, if I could be Go cynical, yeah. um, I, I I think that. Uh, Obviously, vice chancellors of universities and what people working at universities are aware of how hard students have been hit, and they they understand that something needs to be done. There's a lot of pressure on universities at the moment, um, and rightly so. This is something that sounds on paper when you briefly read it to be uh, good, um, but it doesn't actually impact universities in any way. So, um, I think that suggesting this uh, in terms of making it look like universities are trying to help students works for for universities without them actually having to do anything and yes that might sound cynical but at the end of the day the system that we have um uh, a lot of universities function primarily as businesses they make a lot of money um they are making a lot of money this year and, and, and the end of last year in particular without delivering many of the services that they would have to be delivering anyway um so i i completely agree with the government on this one i, I don't think that um this would actually do anything to help students. I also question the government scheme um, because I, again, don't know how uh, impactful that's going to be for, for many students um, and how quickly they'll be able to roll that out. Students at universities have already suffered a lot um, over the past year in terms of the education that they've been getting, uh, how much they've been paying for it. And, you know, these all these other impacts on mental health and um missing out on a large proportion of what should be one of the most exciting points of your life so um i would question i would question both schemes personally and i i do i do think that this is a way for universities to show that they want to do something without them actually having to to do anything really to to help um on that point i got an email the other day from my university saying they're offering hard fund uh, hardship funds uh, but they're loans they're interest-free um, I'm right. not sure if that has anything to do with the government. I know that most universities have hardship funds available anyway. Yeah. I think you can claim up to £600 per term um, if, you're, if you're in need of it. Um, I just think that what I would have liked to hear is something along mandatory um, mental health yeah. facilities with some sort of target to reach or... Um, just having something for like people who are on campus. Most people who are on campus are there because of their home lives at the minute, because we've been told we can't necessarily move in yet. Um, and I can't imagine how isolating it is for first years, mm. like moving to a new city in the middle of a pandemic, yeah. possibly with people in your flat that you don't like, but you're sort of stuck with them. Um, I just think that the sort of attention that we are drawing towards sort of like financial issues is one thing, but that's something that happens 
year on year. There are plenty of people who struggle financially at university and it, it's nice to have that support, but there is so much more additional support that I think needs to happen um, for this to really seem like it's meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that uh, some kind of reimbursement um, in terms of uh, like uh, some kind of direct reimbursement um, in terms of tuition fees, uh, a proper, you know, uh, and, and this is still ec economic, of course, but a pr proper economic support to support those that are, that, that are living on, on campuses. But also, like you say, um, outreach, mental health support um, for for students that are struggling and, and, and ensuring that that is accessible for people and ensuring that um, it's free and uh, it, it does the job that, that it's meant to because um, like like you know like many people say universities expensive as it is and there needs to be some kind of, of value for money there, both from an educational point of view which a lot of those services aren't being delivered at the moment anyway um but also from a lifestyle point of view like you point like like you rightly rightly point out um and uh, that that you know we haven't seen that and and i think it's something for the government to consider when they've botched a lot of the handling of the pandemic up in in the first place this is this would be a way if tackled properly to show that they really care about um they really care about young people um i was gonna ask vicky if so you said that you heard sort of you had an email from the university and that was more of a sort of a loan um hardship fund so but you, other than that have you heard anything about these uh the supposed hardship fund that the government's supposed to be um dishing out I've not had anything about sort of government-led schemes, right. um, but I haven't really had a lot of emails about sort of mental health support mm. um, that's accessible. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have a great tutor who will sort of have Zoom meetings every once in a while, but I don't think that it's fair for staff that are already having to adapt very quickly from sort of online to then being told we might have some things um, in person. So then having in-person um, seminars planned and then moving back online. Um, I don't think it, it's fair on the staff, which I think they're bearing the brunt of this in a lot of cases. Um, it just seems to be sort of very silent. Like we've asked for things like safety nets and they have been rejected. Um, they gave us like a week extension, but a week extension isn't great when you can't access the library, for example, because yeah. the books aren't online. Yeah. Um, it does sort of highlight that in a long term, we need to have a lot of more accessibility. Um, so we get like closed captions on our lect pre-recorded lectures now. That was something that we didn't get before. Um, and I know for a lot of people that's helped. Um, and it is about sort of learning from this pandemic and seeing what we can sort of incorporate into everyday life again. Yeah, yeah. I think we've heard from several uh, students saying similar things about like the silence of not really necessarily hearing much from the university itself and and not especially back towards the beginning of the academic year that people just didn't really know what was going on. Um, yeah. it's, a, it's a shame to hear that it's still kind of the case. Um, but anyway, let's move on to our, our final segment. So we have like a quick fires question segment at the end where I'll, I'll just ask like five-ish uh, questions. Not all of them are particularly uh, serious. So 
don't expect to, to you know, have massive mind-boggling com- uh, debate. But <laughs> I will start with, so the aim is to answer as quickly as possible. We always fail, but that is the aim. That's aimed at me, Vicky, by the way, not you. <laughs> yeah, by, by we, I mean Jack always fails. But um, <laughs> the first question is, and this was one of our uh, recent polls on Twitter. Will the arrival of the South a- South African variant in the UK cause our lockdown to be extended? I'm going to go for <laughs> I'm going to go for no because of government incompetence. We'll have right, lockdown uh, number four instead. Ah, uh, okay. So it'll be will be let loose, and then we'll have to lock down again. Yeah, uh, I I think. I, I don't think they'll do that. I, I hope and pray that they've learned their lesson and that if cases start to rise again, they'll extend the lockdown. Um, so I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt, although <laughs> I, I imagine that I'll probably have that brought up in a podcast in about four weeks' time. Where Brett says, you said, Jack. <laughs> well, I mean, I, to be honest, I think I kind of have to stand with you a little bit, Jack, because I, I want to believe that they aren't going to make the same mistake <laughs> <laughs> uh, third time, fourth time, third time, yeah. um, and to be honest, they have been. The, this lockdown has been longer than the last one, and they have repeatedly avoided saying, uh, giving a date for when it would end. So I'm hoping yeah. that they've learned their lesson. <laughs> I think I think with the um, the vaccine rollout as well, they want to be really careful to make sure that that isn't impeded in any way. So, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fingers crossed. Uh, second question. Should Paul Dacre be appointed as head of Ofcom? No. <laughs> Same here. No. No, the, no, the, that's a no from me. <laughs> openly, openly been agreed by Steve Baker the other day that it's a political appointment. So I think that tells you everything you need to know, yeah. um, to be honest. Yeah. You know, seriously worrying. Yes, it is. Um, next question. Should we shut our borders to prevent the spread of more coronavirus mutations? Yes. Definitely have um, sort of a blanket ban or a very rigid sort of quarantining. There's no point in having people, um, and I hate to say that Tom Harwood made a really good point, but he did <laughs> um, when he said that you can't, you can't travel from hotspots, but if you travel from a hotspot to a country which allows you to, yeah. which is on our list sure. and then you can travel from there in so yeah yeah it's, yeah, it's right um, it yeah. baffles me that it wasn't already done back in march of last year to be honest um because every other country made that decision pretty much to do that straight away and it's been pointed out by so many people that we're an island it's not hard it's not as hard as it would be if you were landlocked or even just had other land borders the uk is a series of islands the isle of man is doing great anyway um so it's like japan and new zealand anyway um next question (laughs) is does rainy weather get a bad rap no i think people hate it and rightly so i think in normal times yes um but in a pandemic um Uh, it's totally justified yeah in a pandemic sometimes um, you're stuck at home and you want to go outside, like in a lockdown. Um, right. Like, As in just, okay. It's okay. raining right now. Yeah. And I want to go outside. <laughs> Fair enough. I, 
do you think that then sometimes like in in normal times a rainy day like for sunday sometimes it's nice it's like quite cozy you know is that kind of where you're coming from right yeah yeah i can see that i can see that some people enjoy the sort of yeah yeah, the relaxing sort of nice yeah like you say the coziness of of, uh being going to sleep when it's raining is going to sleep when it's raining is quite relaxing it is yeah yeah. but i don't want to go outside when i'm going to sleep so i guess (laughs) (laughs) no that's fair enough um my last question is where in the world would you least like to travel least yeah like we, the arctic we've had most before so i'm gonna say least yeah, yeah fair, the arctic. interesting what about the penguins you're not in you're not attracted by the by the penguins no, i'm not that <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not that interested in seeing penguins okay um, i don't know um i'm gonna go dubai um mm. just because all the influences are there would rather not yes yeah, yeah. Or, or somewhere where you know like yeah saudi arabia yeah somewhere like that i yeah, was reading something no interesting going there. i was reading something pretty horrible about dubai uh, the other day it's sort of talking about how it was built so quickly and the, le- the like forced labor that they used to build it yeah. and yeah i'm not sure yeah. I'm go to there are a lot of countries that uh, like uh, whose governments have probably incredibly beautiful countries with amazing people there but I've just got no interest in, in visiting yeah I think I'd probably say somewhere similar yeah like even China nowadays I don't know if I'd want to visit purely based on moral reasons which is a shame because I'd, I would love to go to China I would yeah. love to go to China but yeah for the moral, the moral reasons it's tough yes Exactly. Or like anywhere where there's conflict, I guess, as well. It's probably a... I, like, I don't think Yemen is a particularly nice place to, to go to at the moment, given the human the, the humanitarian crisis and the starvation. I'm sticking with my answer, though. What, yeah. the Arctic? I'm sticking with my answer. Yeah. Or Antarctica. Either one. Right. <laughs> just because it's slightly cold. Not because, you know, there's... Uh, human rights abuses it's not or anything. just slightly cold, Brett. <laughs> it's not just slightly cold, hey, it's, is it? It's, it's not like, warmer oh, than it has been. In Antarctica. It's, it's warmer than it has been. <laughs> yes, yeah. Yeah, you'll anyway. be able to sunbathe there soon. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you already can. You have to, you know, because the sun reflects off the ice, you, you could get sunburned. So, you got to be careful. Only if you're in a shorts and t-shirt. <laughs> We've gone completely off topic. We have, yeah. <laughs> we have. Anyway, thank you for joining us, Vicky. <laughs> It was a very, uh, very yeah. interesting conversation. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Make sure yes, to check pleasure. out. Make sure you go and uh, check. I don't say anything. <laughs> sorry, mate. I'm sorry. No, go <laughs> ahead. Go ahead if you want to. <laughs> no, it's all you. It's all you. <laughs> uh, make sure to check out Vicky's article on uh, on wokeness, the war on woke, on our website. Um, it's a really good read. Um, very interesting to, to to think about as well. And I hope our conversation provided a little extra. Um <laughs> I'm not going to forget this week. Make sure to subscribe <laughs> and like the video and let us know uh, if you've got any comments, if you have any thoughts on what we've said. Uh, we'd love to hear it. Um, and yeah, we'll see you next week. Thank you again, Vicky, for, join- for joining us. Thank you. Cheers, Vicky. Take Thanks, care. Jack. Thank you.